Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the latest HR on the Effective Podcast. It's me, Chris Howard from Lace Partners. As always, thank you very much for joining us. Today is going to be an interesting one because this is the first podcast that we are doing around centered around a new campaign that we've got. So one of the things that we've been talking quite a lot about at Lace, and we've certainly read a lot about in the press and the media, particularly in this post-pandemic world, is this drive for greater productivity amongst the workforce. And so we've launched a campaign really focused on that. And it's quite an interesting one because even though we're calling it a workforce productivity, broadly speaking, as a campaign, what you'll hear from us from Lace and you'll read from us with some of our blogs is that actually that's quite an archaic term, productivity, and perhaps it needs to be redefined. So we're going to do a few pieces around that. But what we also wanted to do is talk to some experts and get some people who really can delve into this whole idea as to how do you get more from people that you have within your business. Because in this current climate, we've got a cost of living crisis. We've got all of these challenges that organisations are facing. And there's often pressure on share prices and margins. And organisations are looking at what can we do with what we've got? Because many organisations can't just magic up more widgets to deliver on their profit margin. So what we've got today is I've got an expert with me on happiness and engagement. And I've always wanted to be an expert on happiness engagement, but I've got a lovely lady called Tracy Brower with me, who is the Vice President of Workplace Insights at Steelcase. Tracy is a published author. She's a regular contributor towards Forbes. She's been a TEDx speaker and she's got a few books, including The Secrets to Happiness at Work. Lovely title. Really love that one. And bringing or bring work to life by bringing life to work. Tracy, how are you? Thank you very much for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting conversation and a good one all around how businesses can drive more productivity. And of course, I cannot do that alone because otherwise it just becomes me interviewing you. And I love a third party. I love a friend to join me from the world of Lace. And in today's episode, I have Mr. Chris Horton with me, director at Lace Partners. How are you doing, mate? You all right? Mr. Chris Howard, how are you? And just hearing Tracy's book titles has brought a smile to my face, spreading the happy already. Yeah, isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? So before we get into the nub of kind of some of the discussions that we've had, because Tracy's written a couple of interesting Forbes articles, one of which I thought was particularly interesting, which is worth us delving into. I want to get a little bit of your background, Tracy. So can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and some of your sort of experience so far? Yeah, absolutely. I am so fascinated by people and organizational culture. So my PhD is in the area of the sociology of work, how we affect our work, how it affects us, our relationship to our work, our relationship to each other through our work, our relationship to ourselves and our identity through our work. And so that means that I get to research really interesting topics like the nature of work, how we engage the performance related to work, how we think about work experience, leadership related to work. And so belonging is part of that equation and uh, the future of work is part of that equation and how we understand our contributions through our work. Fantastic. Thanks, Tracy. So looking at the different stuff that you have researched, what are the kind of topics that really interest you? Is it around line managers and really looking at what they do to drive positivity and happiness at work or is it other things? 
Yeah, I think it's so many things. You're both pointing to a new article that I did and then a series that I did related to leaders and the role of managers in the well-being and happiness and performance of people in organizations. And this one study was just sobering and shocking. And I guess not surprising, but really, really important that almost 70% of people feel like their manager affects their mental health more than their doctor or their therapist and actually on par with their partner. And so most managers looked at that and said, oh my gosh, the pressure as if I weren't under enough pressure, right? But it's also an opportunity in terms of how we think about leading and how we think about our influence on each other, no matter what our position in the organization is. Do you know what? It's interesting because I, like you, you read that and you think, wow, what a stat. But if you think about the reality of a person's life. You spend so much of your time at work. You spend almost as much time at work as you do with your family and with your spouse or with your kids, because most of us, particularly if we're white collar workers, you know, I get into the office at eight, half past eight and normally leave around six ish, get home, cook dinner. So you've got a few hours in the evening and then a few hours in the morning and that's it for your working week. So you spend so much of that time. Does it not stand to reason that as a line manager, you are going to have such an impact on somebody's life and their mental well-being and their happiness. Yes, absolutely. We spend so much time at work. And I think the other thing is that work is a really important way that we understand our contribution, that we have an opportunity to express our talents. There was another great study that talked about friendship and community. And 75% of people say that they make their friends at work. And so work is also a place where we just feel connected to other people. And even if it's not our BFF from work, that community, that connection, that social connectedness, that experience is an important part of our lives. And a lot of the genesis of that is from our work. So I've had some great line managers in my life and I've had some awful line managers in my life. And I think it's interesting to look at. In many ways, I've probably learned as much from those awful line managers as I have from those great line managers. I'm interested in your view and if the research did anything around that. Yes. Oh my gosh. I've written about this before as well. I feel like we can learn so much from our line managers. And the other thing I think is really interesting is to think about your first leader. A lot of times that first leader was really formative in terms of you understanding the process of leadership and understanding what works and what doesn't work. And leaders have such an important impact in terms of giving people a sense of purpose, in terms of connecting their work to the overall sense of purpose in terms of helping people to feel validated and feel seen and feel appreciated in terms of building the microcosm of culture on a team and fostering the relationships between team members, not just between the employee and the leader. So yes, that great leader, that terrible leader, you're learning so much from either of those modes of behavior. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I'd like to just ask you a question and just give me some of your thoughts around this productivity angle. As I said, right at the top of the show, we're running a campaign at the moment because we are speaking to a lot of our clients, but also companies, HR teams about what are the big challenges that you're facing at the moment. And we hear a lot of people saying, well, trying to deliver on what we've got, but trying to do more with what we've got, as I said, right at the top of the show. So I just wanted to get some thoughts from you because you've written some fantastic books around this link between happiness 
and productivity. Can you just give me some top line kind of thoughts based on some of the research that you've done? Yeah, absolutely. I love this topic. And there's so much to unpack, right? How do we define productivity? How do we redefine productivity? How do we think about spillover? What kinds of work are best in different places? But the other thing that I think is a really, really good one to start with is all of the correlations between happiness and productivity, to your point, right? Like some good business leaders will say, hey, happiness is pretty fluffy and do we really need to spend time on this? And actually the research on happiness and productivity and performance is really significant. Like when people are happier, they tend to demonstrate greater performance. They tend to set bigger goals. They tend to be more likely to meet those goals. They tend to stick around an organization longer. They tend to attract positivity and foster positivity in the culture. So happiness has this real link to performance and productivity. And this has even been studied, not just at the organizational level, but also at the country level. So when countries' citizens are happier, the country tends to have greater GDP greater educational attainment and better physical health and well-being among the citizens. So it's pretty cool, this link between happiness and performance at many levels. Why do you think some business leaders are pro-happiness and can see the relation, but many almost, to your point, say it's either fluffy or a soft skill or something that that's not of true value? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of times business leaders look at people and business as two choices that we need to make. Like we need to choose to serve people or choose to get business results. And they may literally not be familiar with all of the research and the data. I mean, when we really start with people and do the right thing for people, business results absolutely flow from that. There's this beautiful concept of reciprocity in terms of our human dynamics, right? Like when the business or when the leader or when the colleagues do something for you, you tend to want to give back as well. So a great work experience full of, I don't know, purpose and growth and validation tend to result in more effort, discretionary effort, more innovation, people bringing their best. And so there's that really clear relationship But sometimes I think business leaders don't know the data or aren't aware of it or believe in this false dichotomy between people and business. And you touched on briefly the whole definition of productivity. And I actually, I kind of dislike the word, to be honest, because I think it often makes people think about inputs in outputs. And it's a very sort of old school industrial concept that people have in their head. So it's more about an efficiency measure or people think about it just as GDP of a country. There's nowhere in between, really, that people think. Do you think we need to come up with new definitions of productivity or maybe it should just be parked on the shelf and it should be about performance or high performance. I'm interested in your views and the research, whether that's shifting in any way. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think one of the things we tend to do as humans is a lot of times we'll overvalue quantitative and undervalue qualitative. We'll overvalue what we can count and measure. And sometimes we don't put as much value on things that are harder to count. And I think productivity is an important like subset or ingredient of overall performance. And there's actually been some really interesting research about where the best work happens. And during the pandemic, there were some headlines about companies with record productivity and, you know, people are turning the crank and turning out widgets. But at the same time, why 
while there was maybe more efficiency, there was maybe less effectiveness. And there's that wonderful quote that effectiveness is doing the right job and efficiency is doing the job right. And so you need both, right? So if we redefine productivity, we might think about it in broader terms that include performance, which includes innovation and collaboration and retention and engagement. And it includes productivity as well. I think the other thing that's related here is the better we get at measuring the more we can measure some of those things that are harder to count. And we're seeing this really important correlation. When people are more engaged, they tend to be more productive. When people are happier, they tend to have better performance. When people are more satisfied, they tend to perform better or be more productive. So I think as we see that conflation of terms and measurements, that will actually help us redefine the bigger picture of performance. You just said something there, Tracy, which actually I just wanted to touch on. You talked about the measurement side of it. Is there a case or can you just kind of elaborate and give me some thoughts around? Because one of the things that I've been thinking about is we did a CPO forum. We brought a load of chief people officers together a few weeks ago now. And one of the challenges that one of the CPOs raised was that getting enough data on engagement and the experience was really, really challenging, particularly if you're in a heavily unionized environment, because quite often the unions have much more data than you do as a business. And that stands to reason because the employees believe that, well, the union is obviously looking out for my interests, so I'm going to give them some more data. So do you think, again, there's, I feel like I'm probably leading the witness a little bit, but can you talk to me about, is there a slight, it's almost there's an inevitability about the greater happiness, the greater engagement we get from our people, and also probably the greater transparency we are going to have as to how we're going to use your data, your information, the information that you give us. Can we talk about the links there between that measurement and then the productivity side with that kind of mindset? Yeah, absolutely. I think your point about transparency is a really good one. And and I think one of the challenges with many of the measurements is that they're self-reports and that we may or may not have access to the data depending on who's collected it. The other challenge with some of the data is a lot of times if we're just collecting lots and lots and lots of data, we're sensing, but it's harder to do sense making. Like it's harder to find the needle of meaning in the haystack. And we need to really be able to look at, I always like to say, don't ask questions that you don't want the answers to. And, you know, collect only what you need. There's also a really interesting paradox related to happiness. The more you measure happiness for its own sake, the less likely people are to report that they're happy. Because you're constantly saying to yourself, am I happy? Am I happy today? I don't know. Am I happy enough? Maybe I'm not happy enough today. And so better is to measure things like the ingredients of happiness or the ingredients of performance. So to what extent do people feel a sense of belonging? To what extent do people feel like they've got an opportunity for growth or development? To what extent do people feel like they want to stick around the company? To what extent do people feel committed to their work or immersed in their work or dedicated to their work? And in some cases, those are easier to also measure by proxy. So you can ask me about my sentiments about if I'm planning to stay, and you can look at HR records about how long people stay. 
You can ask me about my sentiments on whether or not I feel like I have opportunities for growth and development. And you can look at HR records about how much internal mobility there is within the organization. So I really like a mix of measurement that gives not just sentiment analysis, which is maybe what unions have more access to, but also some of the other proxies of data, which may be resident in the organization and may point to some of the things going on in the culture that support learning, growth, you know, retention, things like that. And, and I can I can think of many times at restaurants and on holidays when someone has kept saying, are you happy? Are you happy? Is it OK? Whereas if they just left it to slightly longer periods and let you enjoy the meal. So so I can you can absolutely see the parallel that, that the more often you get asked those kind of things, in some ways it stresses you out a bit, but it also makes you think, well, am I really happy or not? Well, next time I go out for a meal with Chris, I'm going to make sure that I just tip the waiter beforehand and say, just to let you know, go halfway through the meal before you ask if he's happy. At least let him get into the main course, please. Yes, exactly. It's sort of like I've, I've seen it compared to mindfulness. Like if you're if you're trying to meditate or be mindful and you're busy thinking about if you're mindful enough, right? It's kind of like saying, don't think about white elephants. Well, oh my gosh, now I've got white elephants in my mind. The other thing, this is pretty cool. One of the myths of happiness is that you should pursue happiness. But if you pursue happiness for its own sake, it doesn't work for two reasons. One, it focuses you on what you don't already have. Otherwise, why would you be pursuing it? And two, it tends to focus you on yourself, which is negatively correlated with happiness. More positively correlated is when you're contributing to others, you're focusing on others, you're thinking about how you're applying your talents in your community and making a difference for others. So I think that has something to do with it, too. It's this like over focus will actually skew your experience. And I, I, I think, you know, that that really resounds with me saying that, you know, you can't pursue happiness, you can't pursue certain things. It's it's a it's a byproduct of things. I think just jumping back to the whole productivity discussion, you know, I think the examples that you gave were good and, and powerful to think of, of new ways how to define that. Another question that I'm interested in, do you think there needs to be a measure of productivity across all companies? Or do you think it's actually an individual company thing where, you know, where productivity could mean a slightly different thing in a particular company because of their values, their purpose, what, what's, what's meaningful to them? Yeah, what a great idea. I never thought about that before, having like a universal measure of productivity. That would be sort of interesting, wouldn't it? And it would make investing really, really great because you could compare apples to apples. I do tend to think, though, that different companies would need to define it differently and different cultures would need to define it differently. I think we can also think about deconstructing work and thinking about like how is productivity different based on the kinds of tasks you're doing. Like there's some great research about if you are doing work that is truly alone work, like maybe you're writing something or you're, I don't know, you're doing graphic design, you're truly by yourself. That work happens brilliantly in a remote setting or a home setting away. But if you are doing work that's more oriented toward problem solving, complexity, speed, those things tend to be more productive when people are face-to-face. -face. 
so I think we also can, in addition to defining productivity, really define the kind of work we're doing and therefore the context that will be most effective in driving productivity. So I think that's another interesting wrinkle in terms of productivity and performance. Can I just, I, I just want to go back just to something you said earlier, but it's been in my head, I had to write it down because you talked about how governments are measuring sort of productivity or, or happiness levels and, and measuring the link between happiness and, you know, how it can have on a country level an impact on GDPR. And the question I've been going through in my head since you asked that is, is it therefore incumbent on governments to be recognising this and doing it more? Or is it just their responsibility almost to be signposting businesses of the value of this? Like how much of a role do the governments have in trying to drive this amongst their people, which then has that knock-on effect on businesses, or should they just be doing more to educate businesses? Yeah, that's a really, really important question. And it's worth saying Gallup has some really interesting data that looks at the relationship between happiness and unrest, civil unrest, violence, war, things like that. And as citizens become less happy, you see a rise in all of those things, violence, unrest, insurrection, et cetera. So countries need to consider this question. And I think it's a question of both agency and structure. And I like to say, even in companies, as you think, you could think about country leadership or company leadership, organizational leadership. And I like to say it's the difference between being responsible to and responsible for. So I think that people individually are responsible for their happiness, their productivity, their well-being, right? Like that's the agency part of the equation. People have a responsibility for their own sort of futures and their own lives. However, governments or leadership or organizations are responsible to create the conditions for happiness, effectiveness, well-being, right? That's the that's the structure part of it. Agency, people doing what they're doing, structure, overall systems and contexts for effectiveness. So in an organization, the employee is responsible for their well-being, but oh my gosh, is the organization creating a sense of purpose? Is the leader validating? Is the leader giving you know growth opportunities? Or in a country, do we have policies that empower people? Are we allowing for people to participate fully in the activities of government or the activities of choice making, those contextual elements, I think, are really important. So for me, it's that difference between responsible to and responsible for. So yes, countries are responsible to people, organizations are responsible to people, leaders are responsible to people, and people are responsible for themselves. I don't know if that makes any sense. Does that? Is no, that 100%. It, it does, because yeah. I think it's basically saying the macro and, and how that drives happiness within a country actually then feeds into business, into individuals and how and how they operate and can do what they need to do. So absolutely makes sense. We we touched on relationships and even we talked about friendships earlier. So I wanted to delve into the world of how much do we need to be friends with our work colleagues? I know that some of my best friends in life I've met at work. So it's no surprise that, you know, some Is of that the stats. Oh, mate, of course. You know, <laughs> some, some people are just needy enough to have to ask the question. <laughs> yeah. So looking at the the working relationships and how that 
breeds happiness. I guess the question is, do we all need to be friends at work or can we just get on and, and do our job? Oh, this is such a good one. I wrote an article not too long ago. It was in Fast Company about like why work is a great place to make friends because you get to know somebody over time, because you do both task and relationship together, because you see the ebbs and flows in people's lives, right? Work is a really great place to make friends. And then there was this giant debate online about should you have a friend at work? Is that TMI? Is that too much? And there was this real big disagreement about it. And then finally, somebody somebody said, chimed in at the last minute. They said, you know, maybe it's re- less about friends at work and more about a friendly workplace. So I thought that was a great compromise. Here's the reality. Many people feel better about their work, feel better about their lives and have greater mental health when they feel more connected with others. And I think how you define that connection is individual, right? Like I might want to be BFFs with somebody and we're going to, I don't know, we're going to go out for happy hour after work, or we're going to share, you know, confidences and secrets. We're going to share with each other vulnerabilities. On the other hand, you might prefer more of a friendly environment where you get along with colleagues, but you're not, you know, best friends always. And I think that just needs to be individual choice. I think the the bigger thing is our organizations and our leaders creating the conditions for people to have a high level of respect, for people to debate and disagree in constructive ways. Our workplaces creating the conditions for people to feel a sense of belonging. Like it's very cool. The re- sociological research on belonging says that We don't get a sense of belonging just from being with other people in the same room. We get a sense of belonging from a shared sense of social identity. So when we give people tasks they can share together, when we give people the opportunity to be challenged in their work and roll up sleeves together, when we give people the opportunity to, I don't know, chat for a couple of minutes before the call starts so we get to know each other, those are all really pragmatic ways to give people a greater sense of belonging. So I think the the bigger thing is connectedness and belonging so people have a greater sense of meaning in their work. And the bigger thing is creating the conditions where we're really feeling like we're appreciating each other and being appreciated. You talked about connectedness and belonging, and and I think it's interesting, you know, over the pandemic, I think it's amazing how we all picked up and virtually, you know, ran companies and did all of these things and, and kept the economy going. And I think there's, you know, there's huge ingenuity and innovation that just is the human condition. So I think that's amazing. I think it's interesting looking at connectedness and belonging now and and really looking at what are the activities, what are the tasks that we do need to be together physically versus, you know, like we are now doing a virtual call. What's the right thing? And and I think that's, you know, one of the challenges of the of the modern workforce, isn't it? How do we work out what's the best thing and how does that result in either engagement and hopefully happiness or, you know, disengagement and me looking for something else to do? Yes, exactly. And I think it's a both and. Like I I think that we did all the distance because we had to and we brought ingenuity to it and we humans by goodness we're going to thrive, you know, through lots of difficult situations. But I really feel like that pendulum needs to move back more toward the center. 
And we may have a new realization of how much we can do from a distance and be effective from a distance and build relationships from a distance. And human beings crave a feeling that they are absolutely connected with other people and they crave face-to-face. And we've seen this epidemic of loneliness, this epidemic of depression and anxiety. And that is absolutely correlated with our distance from each other, both real and figurative. And so we need to, I think, absolutely to your point, figure out when do we need to be together? How much do we need to be together? And we need to absolutely remind ourselves and validate for ourselves how critical those relationships are with each other. And if we if we think we can just, you know, sit in our homes and never see anybody ever again except on camera, we're probably fooling ourselves and we will we'll pay the price for that. There is some interesting data, and I know I keep talking about research and data, I'm such a nerd, but there's a really interesting study that talked about a very high number of people had called their friends, like they were being more selective about who they spent time with and how they spent time in a really productive, appropriate way. So I think that's absolutely fair. Like, you know, I may not need the hundred people that I was staying in touch with, but by goodness, I've really figured out the six or seven who are really, really important to me and my, you know, my relationship with myself and my support of them. So it's, it's that moment to be intentional. It's, it's almost like life productivity. Oh, I love that. That's really good. <laughs> I can uh, use so that. You, you can have it. You can take that or something, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we have hit the half an hour mark, so we're just running out of time. I wanted to ask one kind of final question, though, because this is the HR on the Offensive podcast, and we have obviously lots of HR professionals that listen into this, and we've been talking specifically around workforce productivity in that campaign. But is there any final thoughts from your perspective around, if I'm a HR person right now, what are the immediate... Is, is there any little tips and tricks? What can I do in helping to drive workforce productivity? Now, I know that's a massive question and probably could, could have a podcast answer in itself, but any kind of bits that just pop into your head just as we finish off today? Yes, totally. I think it's a great time to be in HR. Never a better time to be in HR, right? Because everything comes back to talent and everything comes back to people. So, you know, go team for, for those of us in HR. And I absolutely believe that HR has two really important things they can do. I mean, they've got 200, but two that come to mind that are really, really important. One is to be that super objective person that somebody can go to, right? Like I see my leader day-to-day, I see my colleagues day-to-day, all of that matters to my experience. But having that objective HR person to go to is really, really helpful. Knowing there's that person who is supportive of me. And the other thing from an HR perspective that I think is just huge is HR is so much about systems and processes and policies and practices. And so to the extent that HR can can create systems and policies that then get scaled across the organization, like maybe we're developing leaders who are better at supporting people's mental health. Maybe we're developing policies where we're promoting people with more equity so that we support mental health through growth, et cetera, right? All of those policies and systemic practices throughout organizations are so much things that HR can impact and influence. And so I think it's just an amazing moment to be in HR for many of those reasons. 
That's lovely. Tracy, thank you very much for your time today. It's been absolutely fantastic. I feel like we probably could have done a two hour solid podcast on the amount of questions that Chris and I both have. But um, this is just a 30 minute podcast. That's obviously our our USP that we have on the HR on the Offensive podcast. But it's been really great to talk to you. Thank you very, very much for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for the conversation. What we will do is we'll put a link to Tracy's article because she did Managers Have Major Impact on Mental Health, How to Lead for Wellbeing. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Chris, thank you for joining me as always. Mr Howard, thank you. You can obviously get this podcast wherever you get podcasts. You can catch us, all of our back catalogue on the Lace Partners website, lacepartners.co.uk forward slash podcast. That's it from me. That's it from Chris. That's it from Tracy. Thank you very much for listening as always. And we will see you next time on the HR on the Offensive Podcast. Bye-bye.